This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees wanna find me, and then wanna hire me. What's a hundred k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Good morning or good evening to you guys. Welcome to another episode of Farm So Hard. I'm your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. FarmD in the ED, and I have a special episode today. I'm joined by one of the biggest names in pharmacy and toxicology. Go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Wow, thanks, Jimmy. That's too kind. Uh, my name is Brian Hayes. I'm an EM pharmacist at Mass General Hospital and a clinical toxicologist and um, also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. Perfect. And today's episode is going to be on the history and the future of emergency medicine pharmacy. And I want to bring you on on the show today because you've actually been able to see a very interesting part of ED pharmacy where you've seen where it was a few years ago. And now we went from in 2007 having two EM residencies and where the only way into having additional training with critical care and toxicology like you did yourself. Now we have, we're up to getting close to 60 or 70 PGY2 emergency medicine. So I think that's a pretty interesting component. But just for the audience, I want them to kind of get a more background on you. So can you tell the audience what made you interested in emergency medicine? Yeah, so I actually got an undergraduate degree in chemistry, and I worked for a couple of years in a lab doing medicinal organic chemistry. Basically, it was a like a it was like a precursor to a pharmaceutical company where we were coming up with compounds that would be tested for a potential activity. And I like that, but after a couple of years, I realized that without a PhD in that field, there's only so far you can go. And I did not want a PhD in chemistry. <laughs> so I started kind of looking at options and I had worked as a pharmacy technician during um, my undergraduate school. Um, I, so I was kind of thinking about what I might want to do next. Was it law school? Was it medical school? Um, and I started talking to some pharmacists. And just to give you the time frame, this is in the early 2000s. Um, and I had no idea that there was any pharmacy field outside of working at a community pharmacy. And when I started talking to these recent graduates, they were telling me about all the clinical training that you can do after pharmacy school to become a clinical pharmacist. And I was fascinated by this. And so with my chemistry background and that knowledge, I applied for pharmacy school. Um, and I went to a program that was a three-year program. So had my degree already, my BS, and it took, it was an advanced uh, like an accelerated program. And so I finished in three years. And so I graduated pharmacy school in 2005. And that was in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I stayed in Worcester to do a first year residency um, at UMass Memorial Medical Center in, right in downtown Worcester. And I kind of came to, this is where the emergency medicine sort of first uh, kind of came to the crossroads. I really wanted to do an emergency medicine residency, but in that year, there was only four or five in the country. And my wife wanted to go back to get her PhD and we, we were trying to find a geographic area that we could both do that sort of training. And it just didn't really work that way. Um, but when I was in my PGY1 residency, UMass has a really big toxicology program. And as part of our residency, we got to go to a weekly toxicology conference with the tox folks. And that really got me interested in toxicology. And so I realized that if I did a fellowship in toxicology instead, then I could 
basically mix those two interest areas of, of mine, emergency medicine and toxicology, which is what I ended up doing. So I did the PGY-1, two years of fellowship, and then I went right into practice as an emergency medicine pharmacist. Yeah, that is phenomenal. And if a lot of people who, you know, don't really understand the different ways to get into, this is something that's still going on now that we can get into emergency medicine with more of a toxicology background. And one of a few of my good friends, and I was fortunate to train at Grady, where they have the PGY2 in emergency medicine, critical care, and they have the fellowship in toxicology, where you kind of get to see a unique aspect. And that's a pretty cool, you know, way to get into it. So for a lot of the listeners who are, you know, interested in emergency medicine, that's a different way to get into it. And it's a pretty unique way as well. So when you've got, again, you've been able to see since the early 2000s where pharmacists has been. So as far as like the, how did this training actually prepare you for your, some of your past roles? Cause you've been a few different places and how did your training prepare you for your new role now? Yeah, sure. So when I first started um, after fellowship, I was a clinical pharmacist in the emergency department at the University of Maryland Medical Center. So I did my tox training at the University of Maryland, right in downtown Baltimore at the Poison Center. And then just right a few blocks over is the hospital, um, a couple blocks from the pharmacy school. And so I was the first ED pharmacist there. So I, I, I didn't, I, I will say that I, I didn't have all of the training I needed to be in that role right away. But during my fellowship, um, I was able to do a couple of months of rotation at the Johns Hopkins ED that did have ED pharmacists, um, and they were just right across town. And so I had at least enough background to know what the role of an ED pharmacist should be at that time. And being brand new and none of the ED docs or nurses kind of had any idea what the role of the pharmacist would be. I mean, in fact, I had one of the nurses tell me in the first week, like, I'm not sure what you're going to do here, kind of. <laughs> um, and we ended up becoming great friends over the next eight years I was there. So it, 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 it went from, we don't know why we need you to, holy crap, we can't kind of survive without pharmacists being in our ED. Um, <laughs> and we want more of them. And so that that's a similar story to a lot of emergency medicine pharmacists that I talked to is that they were the first one or one of the first ones. And they grew from one person to two or three or four, and now they're 24-7 and have residents. And it's just amazing the progress that's been made over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. That's phenomenal. And I've been fortunate to kind of see a similar kind of a path where, you know, when I was at PGY2, they've had services there since, you know, early 90s. And now where I'm at, we're just establishing services. And I had a few people say like, hey, you know, before you guys got here, I thought you were going to be very annoying. I thought you're going to be just a connection to the, the central main pharmacy and it's just going to be you know horrible but as time kind of grown on they've seen the things that we can offer and i'm definitely looking ahead two three four years to try to figure out how can i establish 24 7 services so that's phenomenal you had the same initial resistance when you came in so you bring as, up a really good point too because um, one of the things that i found over the years and, and you've probably found this too is that it's very easy to to integrate yourself into that environment after a while to the point where you were the go-to source for most of the drug information questions. But if you are at an academic site where you're training residents, you simply giving them the answer is not training them to be better doctors when they graduate and go out into the community or wherever they go. And so I had to completely change the way that I, that I taught 
um, to be much more of a, okay, here's my thought process and how I got to this conclusion. And now that you can take with you when you go, as opposed to this is your antibiotic choice. And it was a big change over the last uh, decade. Absolutely. That, that's a phenomenal point as well, because I think uh, initially young clinicians, young, you know, pharmacy clinicians who want to give like the right answer and they, the value that they feel, you know, is, hey, I helped the team today. But how are you helping the team in a, you know, right now moment versus the fostering the development of, you know, your medical and nursing colleagues? And that's going to be the thing in a lot of academic centers. So one thing I've definitely, as you mentioned before, it's like, hey, maybe I shouldn't, you know, just say, hey, do this, but give more of the, the why. And that's, the, that's what fostered the development of this podcast and a few of the educational services that I have. It's more of the, the why and kind of fostering the clinical development of the practitioners around me. So you mentioned again that early on that there wasn't a lot of PGY2s, there wasn't a lot of, you know, go-to people. So who were your mentor, mentors when you entered practice? Yeah, I'm glad you gave me this particular question in advance because um, I've had a lot of influencers over the years. Um, the, when I was first getting started, my, my main mentors were, there was three, um, and these are kind of obvious based on the, my training, but one of them was my fellowship director. Um, she was uh, her name was Wendy Kleinschwartz. She's uh, re mostly retired now, but she, phenomenal, phenomenal clinician, faculty member at the School of Pharmacy in, in Baltimore, um, and just a phenomenal researcher. Um, and it was just a great mentor. And so she was outstanding. Um, her counterpart, the director of the Maryland Poison Center, who's still there, is um, Dr. Bruce Anderson. And he was also a big mentor and still is actually to this day. Um, he was uh, a member of ABAT, the American Board of Applied Toxicology. And so through that is where I kind of got my first introduction to ABAT and, and started down the toxicology um, organization road. And then the other one was what my head. I mentioned earlier that I did a couple of months of rotations in the ED at Hopkins, which was just across town during my fellowship. And the pharmacist there, uh, the lead pharmacist in the ED at the time, Umbreen, um, she was a mentor to me as well, especially when I was first starting practice, because I believe she was the first one at Hopkins. Um, and so she had a lot of good information for me. I'm like, okay, here's the things to focus on in the first three months and here's in the first year and kind of here's where you should be to give you a timeline of kind of how to develop things at a similar academic sized hospital. So it was a really good connection there. Um, she was also really a big help when we started our first residency at Maryland because um, she had a residency already. So it was, it was a really good connection. Absolutely. And it's pretty cool just to see the historic standpoint from, from that angle, especially for me, who's a new clinician and, you know, seeing someone who, you know, a lot of the pharmacists that are coming out now look up to people like you and Umbreen, uh, uh, Nicole down in Rochester and a lot of the pharmacists who, again, develop what we have now. And I think sometimes we lose connection and, and just don't realize like the hurdles and uh, the progress that we've experienced in emergency medicine pharmacy over the years. What was the state of emergency medicine pharmacy when you entered practice from a more global perspective? And can you talk about some of the, the history of the EM PharmDs when you were going into this and the training and the role even outside of what you did? Sure. Um, I, I was firstly not one of the first emergency medicine pharmacists, as you mentioned. They were in your hospital in the 90s, and they date way back even further than that. Um, I think I just, I kind of came at a 
at the at a good time um, during for emergency medicine pharmacy. So as I mentioned earlier, when I was looking for residency training, there wasn't a lot of choices. <laughs> um, there was Detroit, Rochester, um, and um, I'm blanking on a couple of the other ones, but there there was a not a lot, but a handful. And as you mentioned, now there's like approaching 70 or 80, which is absolutely amazing. It's, it's actually awesome. So the state of pharmacy back then was that, of ED, is that a lot of the folks that were going into ED pharmacy didn't have EM pharmacy training. And they had, like you mentioned, critical care. Um, but even more so, a lot of hospitals were getting funding to have at least one pharmacist in the ED. So they were taking PGY1 graduates that were looking for a job and interested in kind of being an innovator in their hospital and starting EM services there. And so I think back then there was probably not as much consistency or standards between different EM practices just because there was so much variety of the training of the folks who were coming into those positions. Um, there, fortunately, there are pharmacy organizations that have uh, EM specific uh, work groups or sections that that have really helped foster the development over the past decade or so, and um, specifically referring to ASHP and ACCP, both of them have EM-specific uh, groups that, that work on a lot of key issues, which is, which is great. But um, the other challenge back then is that there weren't as many EM pharmacists, so it wasn't as easy to reach out to, to get a mentor or to ask questions listservs were a, a huge thing back then. Twitter wasn't a big thing back then. And so there wasn't these easy connections to say, oh, I have a question about X. Uh, let me reach out to a colleague. It wasn't as easy. And so um, fortunately, like I mentioned, I had a Breen right across town where I was able to bounce a lot of ideas off of her. Um, and then as my career developed, I started to meet a lot more EM folks and we were able to kind of get a group of people that would bounce ideas off each other. But um Back in the day, also, ASHP had, um, I didn't actually go through this training, but they actually had, uh, it wasn't fellowship training, I forget exactly what they called it, but they actually had uh, programs that you could sign up and over the course of uh, six months or a year, you could be basically mentored by a practicing ED pharmacist to develop your own practice. Um, it, was, it was a really cool thing um, that they did. So the bottom line, I guess, is that practice has evolved a lot over the last decade or decade and a half, I'd say. Um, a lot of the same things we were doing then, we're, we're doing now just a lot better and with a lot more help. Um, the other thing is that when hospitals were looking to institute ED pharmacists, there was some literature coming out at the time about um, the pharmacist or pharmacy technicians or just pharmacy team members in general doing really good jobs with medication histories and reconciliation. So a lot of pharmacists kind of got their start in the ED by doing that role, which for a lot of pharmacists is probably not the most um, enticing of roles, but it was a kind of a foot in the door. Um, and those kind of evolved into more clinical um, scenarios because kind of like once the pharmacist is there, then they're going to start being able to do a lot more things. So it was kind of a way to at least get someone in the department. Absolutely. And that's pretty interesting because I know when I was going through, I would talk to different pharmacists that had different roles throughout their career. And they would say, man, you would have hated to be here in the, you know, 2008, <laughs> you know, 2010. I was like, dude, I was in high school. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I was just, you know, wanting to, I, I remember I was, I told someone, I was like, you know, I was lucky at you know, 16, I wanted to be a pharmacist. And I was very fortunate to 
the meet with some, a few people and I was like, wow, that just really fits me. ED really fits, you know, my, my, my personality and things like that. And I was like, yeah, it does now. We've done a lot of work for you. So be thankful for all the pharmacists that's been doing this for, you know, uh, 10 plus years. So I, I, I definitely appreciate that standpoint. And it's really funny you mentioned that about kind of like your mindset matches the ED because mine is my outside of work life is like the complete opposite. I like to have everything planned and scheduled and regimented, but then in the ED, obviously nothing exists like that. And so for me, it's almost like, and I just realized this a couple of years ago, but it's like the complete opposite. It's like my way to sort of not be who my like, my life is outside of work. Like my personality and everything is the same, but the the things that drive me and how I prioritize and all that is just very different than how I do it in my life outside, which is just weird. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's pretty interesting because like at, at my, at my new shop, you know, a lot of us have completely different personalities and my counterpart that I work with, we're complete opposites from each other. You know, she's very regimented. She's very like, you know, you know, task oriented and everything has to be kind of, you know, on point. And then for me, it's like when I'm not like dealing with patient care, you know, I'm, I'm the same way, but she's like, you know, it's like kind of back and forth. So like, I really enjoy just the chaos and just, you know, not knowing what's going next and just really getting things started. And it's just very interesting how like your personality, you have a work personality. And for me, I have a work personality when I'm dealing with patients, then I have a personality when I'm like dealing with meetings and projects and things that time. So it's, it's very interesting how the ED is and it, this, uh, the, the lifestyle of it is very interesting, you know, especially when you're, you know, just doing the patient care aspects of it and you don't have as many administrative roles. It's like, you're really in the ED at random times. Uh, you know, you may miss meetings because most of them are in the morning and depending on your work schedule. It's just very interesting how the ED is and again, like how it, it has evolved over time. And as I'm getting to that, you know, you mentioned it from the standpoint that initially we had a lot of interest with the med histories but what are some other things that you know that you haven't spoke of yet that's changed over the span of your career as far as the role and the function of for you and as in as the, all the other em pharmacists sure um hopefully i don't miss anything major here i was thinking about this question a lot um because a lot of people have done such amazing work to get us to where we are now so i wanted to highlight a couple of things that i think have been really good um ashp I can't remember when the first one was. It was in the mid-2000s, um, and then they updated it in 2011, and we're currently working on another update. But ASHP basically put out guidelines for practicing in the emergency department. Um, and different authors have taken um, shots at kind of updating the different iterations, and we're on number three right now. But um, that document alone is just, is a real, if you look back at the previous versions, um, and I think our, our one now, I th it hopefully will be out next year. Um, but you can kind of look and see how the role of the pharmacist has progressed, um, just looking back at those documents, because you're like, wow, that, in 2011, these were the things that were the most important, and now we're, we've come this much further. So it's a good sort of measuring stick, I think. Um, plus, it's just good, especially for people that either are just looking to start services, which I know we're going to talk about in a few minutes, um, or looking to expand, those kind of documents can help you give the justification and the background for why you need that or kind of how to get there, which is great. So that's one thing I think is amazing is the guidelines. Um, two is in the last, uh, I think it's 2016, so the past three years, uh, EM pharmacists have gotten a two position statements, um, one from the American College of Emergency Physicians, which was a huge 
um, win, I think, um, where they basically stated in, their, in this position statement that EV pharmacists were um, vital members of the of the EV care team, and that was that was awesome. We we did a lot of work with that organization um, to help get that passed. So that was great. And then just last year, the American College of Medical Toxicology published a position statement on the role. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just last year, uh, the American College of Medical Toxicology (ACMT) published a position statement on the role of the ED pharmacists as well. So we have two major national physician organizations that have positions on ED pharmacists, which is, which is great. So that's, that's definitely new in the last uh, five years. Third, uh, which we've both mentioned now, is the explosion of PGY2 training opportunities. Um, these just did not exist uh, 15 years ago. There, there wasn't a lot of options. And now I think we're approaching 80. Some of the programs have more than one resident, which is great. Um, I had started one back at Maryland, and now at Mass General, we started another one. So that there's there's those two. Um, so it's just great that people can go almost in any state now and have the opportunity to train in emergency medicine, which is great. Um, third is there are a lot of um, resources now for pharmacists that didn't necessarily get the chance to do a PGY2 EM residency, but want to practice in the ED or are looking to start practice in the ED. Um, ASHP just released a certificate program for EM pharmacy. Um, I sound like I'm touting ASHP a lot. It's just because I've done some work with them. Um, and they, I think that they've done pretty well in, in helping set up EM pharmacists um, to, to do their job well. So um, so that's really great that these there's these resources. Um, I've also found it helpful for people that have done a PGY-1 and are now practicing in emergency medicine but still want some more clinical knowledge and kind of a way to, to really uh, kind of get the clinical uh, learning that you would have gotten during a residency, but just they didn't have the chance to do it. So these resources are great for that. Um, and so those are probably the four major changes, I think, that have happened in the past five to 10 years that I think have really helped push us forward. Yeah, and it's definitely been a, a huge help for for me because you know not only am I and my colleagues that I work with at my primary shop are all new practitioners, but we're we're starting at a place that say academic you know teaching center level one trauma center that has never had pharmacists before this year. So all these research that you mentioned, I have the, I have like copies of these like printed <laughs> out everywhere, and you know it's it's just pretty cool to kind of see where we are now and. I really get an appreciation. Like I really love EM pharmacy and like, that's my thing. It's like, I really enjoy it. So looking at the past and, you know, talking to individuals like you and I talked to Nicole and Aquesto, you know, while back just talking to her, all of you guys and seeing kind of the progression has really been exciting to hear about and actually to be part of. So that's been pretty cool. So not if you've kind of experienced all of this prior and been involved in these organizations and seen this, where do you envision EM pharmacy going? Cause we're doing a lot of stuff now and I'm like, you know, I, you know, I'm super excited for the things that we do, but where do someone like you envision our role and scope going in the future? Yeah, this is a tough question actually, because I, I feel like we're in a good space right now. Um, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep pushing forward, but I, I do feel like we are, we're, we're doing well right now. I think that the next couple of things are the kind of the challenges that I would, uh, Put out there for us to to strive for are one is it's going to happen probably in the next year or so but we're going to have a board certification for em so i think that's really important 
Um, I, I was never a big fan of BCPS for EM pharmacists. I felt like it was a lot of hospitals or, or employers kind of mandated that that we have board certification. So that was kind of like the one to do um, because it was, we didn't have an EM certification. Um, but I, I just don't feel it's the, the right one for an EM pharmacist. I and mean, I don't feel like critical care is the right one for an EM pharmacist either. So I'm really excited that we're going to have a, uh, a, I don't know what it's going to, what the letters are going to be, but we're going to have a board certification for EM hopefully in the next year or so, which will be great. So that's, that's great. Um, Tox is the other one. So a lot of EM pharmacists or Tox fellowship pharmacists that are now practicing in EM um, go on to become board certified in toxicology through the American Board of Applied Toxicology. So that's another opportunity that I think is going to be, be continue to grow over the next um, five to 10 years. Um, research is another one. So we've come a long way. Um, there are EM pharmacists as first authors on major publications. Um, and I think that's outstanding. And they're Every time I see a new article on drug therapy in the ED, there's usually at least one pharmacist on that team, which is just outstanding. Um, so I want to keep pushing that. Um, I, I think that we can be authors on national and international guidelines, and I think that we should be leading those charges. Um, so I think that's something that we should be pushing for and, and getting involved in. Yeah. Um, I think high-level leadership within pharmacy um, and non-pharmacy organizations. So I think a lot of the a lot of the presidents and the high level leaders I've seen within the pharmacy organizations seem to be more from the operations side of pharmacy and not as much from the clinical, um, at least at the very top levels. Um, and I'd love to see more clinical, but specifically emergency medicine specialty folks in those leadership positions. I think that would be awesome. Um, I know that's starting to happen um, in uh, like the American Board of Applied Toxicology, where I'm the president now um, in AACT, which is the clinical toxicology organization that is um, sort of the grandfather organization for ABAT. Um, there's a lot of pharmacist leadership within there, but um, I think that we can do better, and I'd love to see high-level EM leaders within the pharmacy organizations. Um, secondly, I think um, something that I, it's at least been a value to me, I, I don't know if it would be a value to everyone, but I think it's something that we should strive for, and that's being more integrated in the residency, the physician residency programs, and um, being faculty at the medical school, being faculty at medical school or schools of medicine, depending on where you work. Um, I think that that would be outstanding for more EM pharmacists to be recognized for the teaching that they do um, as faculty members. So I think that those things would be the things that I would say, let's shoot for these things in the next five years. Yeah, I'm happy you mentioned these things because I didn't even think about the fact of like just pharmacy leadership, that being a possibility. Me being very early in my career, thinking down the road, is I always thought about maybe teaching at a pharmacy school or getting involved in that section. But the things that you mentioned, getting certified in toxicology, getting involved in, in, in higher level leadership, definitely seems to be something that we all should strive for. So I'm happy you mentioned those things and being involved in the medical emergency medicine medical schools and medical residencies in, in the schools of medicine, as you mentioned, all seems to be some things that we definitely should get for. So I appreciate you mentioning that. When looking at all of this, how can, one of the things that I think that we're at this junction where we're getting a lot of love from the, the tox folks, we're getting a lot of love from the, the emergency medicine physicians, how can EM PharmDs get more involved in these emergency medicine like societies like ASAP and things like that. You're pretty involved in those things, but how can you advise other pharmacists to get involved? 
Yeah, sure. I, I think there's three categories. And the way that I set mine up is I, part of it is money. You got to figure out how much money you feel like you want to pay to be members of organizations and, and everyone's going to have their own threshold and that's fine. Fortunately, some employees will reimburse you for some of that at least. So when I graduated my fellowship, I, I decided that I wanted to do three organizations. Um, I wasn't totally sure which three they were going to be, yet, but I wanted to do one EM, one in pharmacy, and one in toxicology. Um, so how you pick that is totally up to you. I, I, I will tell you that when I first graduated PGY1 residency, I, had, I was a member of both ACCP and ASHP, and I decided then that I was only going to be able to really get involved in one. I don't know if I picked the right one. I picked ASHP. Um, I, I think that it's been great what I what I what we've been able to do in ASHP. Um, I don't know what the opportunities would have been in ACCP, but I feel like you got to pick at least one of the major pharmacy organizations because you want to continue to have a voice in how um, practice is developing um, and how the leaders of that organization. Uh, view your specialty area and provide resources for that. So I think that picking at least one pharmacy one is, is key. Second um, is tox for me. Um, not everyone in EM is interested in tox, but I do know a lot of EM people are interested in tox. So there are two major organizations that you can join. Um, there's the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, which is the one that I am involved in. Um, and there are a lot of pharmacists in that organization, um, a lot of poison center pharmacists, um, but also a lot of fellowship trained pharmacists that are now practicing in the EM. So it's a really good mix. Um, and there's also physicians, nurses, and others in that one. So it's a really good interdisciplinary commit, uh, 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 committee, or um, let me rephrase that. Um, it's a really good interdisciplinary society. Um, a subset of that is ABAT, which I mentioned earlier. And so that is, pharmacists, nurses, PhDs that are non-physician toxicologists who have passed the ABAT tox certification exam. So that's that's under AACT, but it's um, but you have to pass the exam to be able to, to do that one. So that, that's a little bit more selective, but um, still awesome. And the other one is ACMT, which is we mentioned earlier with their position statement. Um, there's, it's a largely physician organization, but they are wanting to have more pharmacists involved. So uh, they have a lot of good clinical education, um, a lot of great meetings, um, and a lot of great folks there. So that those are kind of the talks ones. And then you mentioned the ED ones as well. The three main ones are ASEP, uh, AAEM, and SAEM. So I would recommend that you that you pick one that aligns with what you're doing or what your career goals are, um, because each of them are are very different. Um, SAEM is much more the research organization of um, ED. So if you feel like research within EM is going to be what you want to do, then SAEM is probably the, the place to go. They actually have a full phys, um, pharmacist membership that category as well. Um, so you can be pretty involved with anything that they're doing in that organization, which is great. Um, my current hospital at Harvard, Mass General, a lot of the faculty that I work with are part of SAM because we're a big research hospital. So that's that's sort of the one that most people there are in. Um, ASEP, you can also get involved in. Um, I'm not as familiar with the the categories of membership for pharmacists, but I know that there's an opportunity to get involved with ASEP. And then AAEM, that one's a little tricky. Um, they recently dropped their um, 
pharmacy or their uh, affiliated membership category. So you can't officially be a member, um, but you still can um, get involved with committees and, and work that they're doing as well. So I think SAM and ASAP are probably the two ones to target right now, um, unless something changes with AAM in the, in the next little while. So um, they all have good meetings to go to as well. SAM is a little bit more research focused. ASAP is kind of like, I think of it kind of like the ASHP meeting of EM. It's huge, lots of people, lots of clinical content. Um, and then AAM is much smaller. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that this past year, when I, you know, first got funding to go to one of these meetings, I'm like, which one should I go to? Um, it's like, oh my God, like, should I go to ASAP? Should I go to SCCM? Should I go to the talks one? Like, you know, which organ like, and then like mid-year, I've been going to mid-year the last three years. <clears throat> I've been going to mid-year the last three years. And I'm like, wow, I'm not going to mid-year for one year. Like, you know, I don't have funding to go there. So that's very interesting to kind of figure out where should EM PharmDs kind of go? Like, is it, the SECM people, is it the ASAP? And it seems to a lot of people has been, you know, transitioned to going to ASAP. And one of my colleagues, she went this last year and she re recommended for all of us to go. And we would love to be in a position where like, like yourself, you do a few presentations and kind of get more involved in those organizations. So now that we're, we're wrapping up, a lot of people would love to be in a position that I'm in right now. But for those that can't, unfortunately, what advice do you give residents pursuing a career at EM? We've mentioned a host of things that are just phenomenal. But do you have any specific recommendations for pharmacists that are interested in EM? Sure. Um, it, it gets tricky because there's so many residency programs out there now. And each person is maybe geographically confined or financially confined to kind of look in certain areas but i would say if you are interested in emergency medicine don't feel like you have to match at a place that has a pgy2 and em i know you i know that seems like the right path and, and it is a good one but don't worry if you don't match into one of those places what you do want to do though is you you want to make sure that you match in a place that has an em rotation so they may not have a pgy2 in em but you can at least rotate with an em pharmacist and get that experience because I feel like it's really important in your PGY-1 year to get an ED rotation early. Um, and when I say early, I mean the August, September, October timeframe, because you need to figure out if EM for sure is what you want to do. Um, and if you don't have that rotation early and then you have it later and you're like, oh, actually, it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be or whatever, um, it's a little bit too late. So I, I feel like we put pharmacists in a tough spot. So you graduate from pharmacy school, you're this brand new pharmacist in residency, and then you have to kind of choose your specialty within three months of being a resident. It's, it's really hard um, kind of determining what you want to do for the rest of your life that early, but try and get the rotations. And this doesn't just apply to ED. Um, if whatever specialty you're interested in, try and get the rotations in that area early in your residency so you can confirm whether or not you want to actually do that. The second thing is get a mentor within the ED. Um, Ideally, it would be a pharmacist that's practicing in the ED, but it doesn't have to be. If you have a really good connection with a physician um, or a nurse or um, someone else that practices in the ED or a pharmacy faculty member that may have a practice site in the ED part-time, um, any of those people would be great um, just because they're going to help you develop your CV in a way that's going to stand out for ED residencies. They're going to probably have research or writing opportunities for you to get involved in. Um, that will help um, help you develop as a as a as a well-rounded clinician. 
Um, and they'll, it, it's all about networking. So they will, if you have a mentor in the ED environment, they're going to connect you to other people within your hospital, potentially in your state pharmacy organizations, um, definitely on the national level, um, through Twitter. Uh, there's all these ways to get connected with people now. So if you have a mentor that that knows a few people, then you can get connected really early um, and start and start to get those those feelers out there. Um, it may help you get a PGY2 somewhere, um, or it might be a collaboration for research in the future or potential speaking opportunities in the future. Um, all of these things kind of lay the groundwork for future um, opportunities. Um, and I mentioned it briefly earlier, but definitely find research projects or papers in EM to work on. Um, you can start this as early as being in your student when you're a student so don't feel like you have to wait for residency but if you're a pgy1 and you're interested in ed try and pick a project that's related to the ed um, i'm sure there's a medication use evaluation or a research project uh, that is geared towards the ed so that would be a good place to start and that way you're starting to build all of those relationships with the physicians you're working with the pharmacy team members early on and it just helps set you up to be successful when you get that PGY2. Absolutely. That, that is phenomenal. Um, we've definitely seen just uh, a lot of advice as far as like, which should you get it? Should you get that rotation? The very first one, um, should you get it like this? Should you do internal medicine first, then do an EM rotation? So it's a lot of talk and a lot of advice out there as far as like what to do. And now that you mentioned it, it seems very crazy for those who's, haven't practiced before and legit goes from being a student to being <laughs> you're practicing for like two months like oh i know what i'm gonna do for the rest of my life now like this pretty interesting that you mentioned it that way yeah First we try to put so we have when you go into residency um especially if there are new residents looking at this one of the options that you have as a pgy1 resident is if your hospital also has a pgy2 residency in that specialty area then you can early commit to that program. Um, and they, there's a process for each of the hospitals to do this. But the, the deadline to decide all that stuff is really early. For ours, we tried to extend it as late as possible and we got it out to the end of October. But that literally, if, if you're coming into a new hospital, July is mostly orientation, and then you have August, September, October. So you have to decide, number one, whether you want to stay at that hospital within three months and you have to decide what your specialty is going to be for life within three months. It's just, it's really hard. So the, as much mentorship as you can get. And, and to answer your question, I think I, I wouldn't necessarily have EM as your very first rotation, unless you had it as a student, I would try and get some other rotation. It doesn't have to be internal medicine, but one that is at least going to get you familiar with how the hospital works. Cause you're, most likely going into a brand new hospital that has maybe a different electronic health record system. Um, you don't know anybody. It might be new geographic region you, you had to move to. So there's a lot of stressors going on. So if you can take one rotation, that'll just help get you familiar with the hospital. Um, not like Mickey or something or ED, something really, really crazy, but some, some more basic uh, rotation. It could be um, ID or even transplant would be great um, if they allow that early on, internal medicine, um, something like that, just to kind of get the flow, meet the people, learn the rep, the health record. And then September, October is a good time to do EM after you've had that first rotation. Absolutely. It's just so much stuff that's going on when you get somewhere. Because I was fortunate to go from a different location, a completely different location for PGY1, a completely different location for PGY2, and then I practice at a different location as well. So it's like you're, you're traveling through all these different areas and 
it's like you're trying to figure out where to get something to eat more so that especially you're going to do for the rest of your life. So absolutely. That, I'm really glad you mentioned that actually. Uh, it's a, it's a really valid and good point that I think young pharmacists should, should heed the advice that you mentioned. And that is, I, I wanted to stay in Massachusetts. I, I didn't want to leave. Um, we tried to make it work with the PGY2 and it just, it, it, all roads were closed. And so I was kind of um, forced to make a decision to move outside of my comfort area, at, which is when I went down to Baltimore. And now looking back on things, I ended up being down there for a, a full 10 years. And I, I would not change a single thing about it. I feel like what I learned at Maryland, um, both in fellowship and as an ED pharmacist at the hospital, I was able to take all of those things back to Mass General where I am now. And in a lot of ways, the pharmacy practice in Maryland was a little bit more ahead of the curve than where we are at MGH. And so I was able to take so much of that experience and bring it back and kind of know what the next step should be for me to get to, um, to try and ex expand our, our practice. And so I, I think what you did, whether it was intended or not, going outside your comfort zone and, and changing up hospitals is not a bad thing. So if you don't get that early commit with your with your program like don't worry like it might be a good thing that you're going somewhere else to learn a, a different style yeah absolutely when i when i went to grady it was definitely for me a dream come true and me practicing there was phenomenal with them having services for so long and just the the depth of services that they provide definitely helped me now when i'm establishing services so this last question i'm not gonna lie it's, def it's definitely for me as far <laughs> as you know i'm a new practitioner a, a lot of people out there the explosion of ED pharmacy has happened rather recent. So a lot of people are just getting into pharmacy or they want to expand. So what advice do you have for new EM pharmacists that are starting or expanding services? Yeah, uh, I have a couple things I wanted to mention on this one. The first thing is don't give up or get discouraged. Um, you're going to probably submit several proposals to your pharmacy leadership um, for a new FTE or, or something. And the, they're going to fight the good fight and it's going to get denied and you're going to kind of live in the same space with the same level of uh, pharmacy support as you have right now for a couple of years it's, it's not common for people to say oh I, I i want 24 7 please pay for it and they say yes on the first shot so don't get discouraged secondly if you have one or two ed pharmacists already and you're not able to get that full third one or or the full second one even um Think about a residency if you don't have one already. Um, as long as you have the institutional support, I would recommend doing it with two pharmacists if you have two. Um, but that's so the third, basically what I'm saying is the third FTE could be a resident and not necessarily a full-time pharmacist because they're a lot cheaper and it's a lot easier to justify that. So you might be able to expand a lot of what you're doing simply by adding an EM resident um, as opposed to a full um, pharmacist FTE. So that's the second thing to consider. Third is the when you're adding um, FTEs to your ED pharmacy team, they don't have to be pharmacists. There's a lot of places now that are using technicians and student interns as pharmacy extenders. Um, they cost a lot less. Um, they love it to get this opportunity. Technicians, they get to get outside of the normal hospital technician work that they do, and it gives them a, a sort of an advancement promotion opportunity. And interns love being in the ED, even if it is just doing medication histories. Um, so think about, sort of think outside the box a little bit in terms of who your next hire is going to be. It doesn't always have to be a pharmacist, um, just because they, they are expensive. Third, which I, you already mentioned this earlier, but... You have to align your hours with when the ED is busiest, especially if you're the first person. Um, working 
seven to three or a nine to five, if you're the only person, it it's hard to it's not hard to establish your practice. It it is hard though to really get the the maximum amount of influence over how things go when you're not there during the busiest hours, because that's when you make the most impact and when your value is felt most by the team. And so um, we have, before we had 24 seven at my hospital now, we basically covered from 7 a.m. until 10.30 p.m., which would like kind of align with the busiest times when we only had two of us. Um, so that's kind of the way to go. Third is make your presence and expertise known. Um, and what I mean by that is there are so many teaching opportunities if you can find the time to do it. And I think it's important enough that you should prioritize this. One is nursing and services. And two is teaching to the faculty or the residents if you're at an academic site. If you're not at an academic site, you're at a community ED. Those uh, physicians also want to learn. Um, they usually have meetings that you might be able to get uh, a teaching uh, on the calendar for that. Um, it does a lot of things. Number one is it teaches them. Two, it establishes your expertise in drug therapy to, to the audience. And so now you're, you're really being recognized and valued as an expert in emergency medicine and pharmacotherapy. Um, and, and third, it's just, it leads to other opportunities. Um, you teaching once, someone's going to come up to you and say, oh my gosh, that was really good. What would you think about coming to our state society emergency medicine meeting and speaking? And all of a sudden, you've kind of created a path for yourself to step outside the local hospital setting or the school of pharmacy or, or medicine setting and going to a little bit of a bigger level. And then that might lead to other opportunities down the road. Um, and the last one is get involved with national organizations. Um, ASHP and AACCP both make it really um, easy because they have emergency medicine uh, sections that you can be part of. Um, ASHP has an emergency medicine clinical parole session at their meeting in December um, where EM Usually it's residents or, or new practitioners will give a five minute pearl at the national level in front of a thousand people. Like those kind of opportunities are outstanding to develop your, your confidence, um, your expertise and make and add to your, your CV in terms of like making you a, an expert in, in your field um, and, and standing out. So I think those are the ways to go um, in terms of new practitioners or folks looking to expand. There's so many things to consider once you're, you're starting services. And I'm fortunate to have a ton of mentors. And this podcast has actually introduced me to a lot of people that I wouldn't be able to speak to just on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's pretty cool to have you on the show to talk about a lot of these things and really just look at the past. And this is going to be just to know that a, a lot of pharmacists want to be in, in you guys' shoes. You guys have definitely paved the way for us. And thank you for coming on the show and letting us a peek of what, what you, your day-to-day -day is and see the history of ED Pharmacy and where you see ED Pharmacy going in the future. So I definitely thank you for coming to the show. And I think the rest of you guys are listening to another episode. Put a lot of the show notes and a lot of the references from ASHP on, online for you guys to have a look at. Thank you guys again. Bye. <laughs>